Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, pray, and then I'm going to read through uh, Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for being able to gather together as your people today. Thank you for the beginning of a new year. Um, thank you for uh, the season of Epiphany, uh, when you unveil who Jesus is and all that he is for us to make us your people. We pray that you would help us as we look at this letter over the next few weeks uh, to be truly blessed in knowing what it means that Christ uh, is the, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of the dead, the one through whom you have made all things, the one through whom you are reconciling all things to yourself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Lord, we thank you that the, the great mystery that is now revealed is that Christ is in and among the Gentiles. And we thank you that that means he's in us and that we are seated with him in heavenly places, that uh, he is our life and that when he appears, we also shall appear with him in uh, glory. Um, <clears throat> Father, we pray that you'd be with us now in our time of study that you would help us to uh, comprehend and apprehend and uh, more fully appreciate uh, what you have done in your Son uh, and what you're doing in us through our being united to him. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. Um, just for the sake of the recording, I'm going to go ahead and read this myself. Uh, so I'm reading out of the ESV here, and I'm going to read um, chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, 
All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, or we could translate that Christ among you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Um, J.B. Lightfoot was a famous New Testament scholar in the 19th century. He has this really interesting line in his commentary where he says, of all the churches that Paul wrote to, um, certainly the town of Colossae was the least important. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that um, Colossae was like, a, was like a backwater. You know, pick your favorite little town out here in rural Washington that hardly anybody visits, right? Um, Colossae was like that. In fact, you know, it, it was so unimportant that not even Paul went there right? All the other churches that he writes to, basically, he visits. Now, we have some evidence from Philemon that he does want to go visit there, uh, but at least at this point, he hasn't gone there. It was Epaphras, under Paul's ministry in the, the city of Ephesus, which was a very important city, and if you remember, Paul stayed there for a couple of years, and it said that his preaching was so successful that the entire region of Asia... <clears throat> and, and kids, just so you know, we don't mean like the entire continent, like China and, and all that. By Asia, we basically mean Western Turkey, okay? What we call today Asia Minor, okay? Um, but the entire region heard the gospel just by Paul being there. And obviously what that means is, is that people like Epaphras were there in Ephesus, heard the gospel, became Christians, and then got trained by Paul 
you know, like like not only was he uh, like running this evangelistic ministry, but it's kind of like he was running a seminary to train men to then go back to where they came, where they were from, out in the hinterlands of of Asia. Uh, you know, regions. You know, there there were regions like Phrygia, uh, Galatia would be a little more to the east, but these these little provinces that are all over Western Turkey as part of the Roman Empire. Anyway, he writes this, we know, from prison. Um, we, many people think that he wrote all those letters from Rome, uh, and that's very possible. Um, and that probably means he would have written them in, like, in the early A.D. 60s, when he's in, at the end of the book of Acts, when he's in Rome. It's possible that he wrote it from Ephesus, there's some evidence um, in, for instance, like 2 Corinthians and some other letters that he might have been in prison in Ephesus as well as Rome. Uh, and that would make a little bit more sense uh, because we know that he's sending Onesimus back to Colossae and he's sending Tychicus to bring this letter to them. Um, Colossae, by the way, it's, it's, um, it's about 100 miles uh, east of Ephesus, and it's in what's called the Lycus River Valley. And much more important cities in that area were Laodicea, which, of course, you know, John writes to Laodicea in the book of Revelation, and Hierapolis. Uh, in fact, Colossae was, was really declining economically. Okay, you, th you think of a city that was once very, very prominent and prosperous, and then it just kind of outlives its time and it doesn't figure out a way to kind of recreate itself um, and and so it goes into decline and, and then there was an earthquake in AD 60 uh, that virtually wiped out Colossae so not only was it economically declining but then it was just physically um, not completely destroyed um, but it certainly you know had its its heyday was was long gone its heyday was long gone but, but, despite that, God is doing a work there, right? I mean, even though economically and socially and politically it's like a drop in the bucket, yet, you know, when you read this letter, people are being transformed by the gospel. People are being transformed by Jesus Christ. People are being transformed by the power of the Spirit. And so the new creation, right? This, this, this hymn that we're going to look at in the sermon today in verses 15 to 20 here, that the, the new creation is happening there just as it's happening all over the Roman Empire. In fact, what does he, what does he say here in verse 6? As indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and growing. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the gospel, verse 23, is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And, 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 of course, what that's referring to is, in this context, the, the Roman Empire, right? The known world to Paul and to the apostles. They were going out and doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do, which was to uh, proclaim the gospel. And, of course, you know, long after Paul is dead, <clears throat> long after this letter is written, um, you know, the gospel goes into Europe. The gospel goes into 
uh, Asia and, and other parts of the Middle East. The gospel goes into Africa and then eventually it goes to North America. Um, and here it is today. And, and these words continue to be true, uh, that the word of truth, the gospel, is bearing fruit. It's bearing fruit. Uh, when you hear the phrase bearing fruit, what do, you, what do you think of? Some of you are farmers here, right? What, what do you think of when you hear the phrase bearing fruit? Grapes. What's that? Grapes. Grapes? Yeah, right, sure. What else? Yeah. It's the right season. It's the right season. Oh, that's a good way of putting it, right? It's not this time of year when there's hardly anything growing. I mean, I suppose cabbages and you can have cold weather. Uh, you, you know, there's a way to grow things even in the winter. <clears throat> but yeah, it's the right season. That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. Um, and part of Paul's point, so I, so I label on your, on, and this is an outline, by the way, from, um, from N.T. Wright's commentary on Colossians that came out almost 40 years ago. Um, and I realize that Wright's controversial on certain things, but this commentary is really, really good um, and very, very helpful. Um, and the nice thing about it is it's kind of short. <laughs> it doesn't take a long time to read. So if you're, if you're thinking about leading a Bible study, uh, that's a resource I would recommend for you. But anyway, he labels this first chapter essentially as an introduction, as an introduction, okay? Um, and the way I like to think about it, uh, and it's an, it's an introduction that serves a purpose, right? Um, when you have a good argument, you are able to undercut your opponent like even before they start making their points, right? If, you, if you've got a really well-crafted argument, you're going to be able to kind of undermine what your opponent says even before they begin, right? You've heard the phrase, cutting their legs out from under them, all right? That's essentially what Paul's doing in the first chapter, okay? Whatever the threat is, whatever the problem is in chapter 2, um, he's using this first chapter to kind of speak positively about the gospel, speak positively about who Christ is, speak positively about his own ministry of the gospel and as a disciple of Christ, an apostle of Christ, in a sense to undercut. And, and part of the way that I could show this to you, and we might do some of that next week, um, is to show that, that a lot of the language of chapter one ends up subtly getting repeated in chapter two so that you can kind of see the connections between um, the two things. And, and the most obvious, most obvious one of that is just the name Christ, okay? Virtually every verse of this first chapter mentions Christ, and the same thing happens um, in the second chapter, that, you know, the Messiah is where it's at, okay? He is the fruitful one, you know, as he said about himself, unless a seed goes into the ground, it cannot bear fruit, right? John chapter 12, I think it is. Um, and, and that's what Paul is trying to say. And, and, and again, the way I liken it is this. There's a famous illustration, see if you can remember this, there's a famous illustration about house building at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Can anybody remind us what that says? Build a house on the rock. Build a house on the rock. Or the sand. 
or the sand, right? What happens if you build it on the rock? It won't get knocked down, right? You can huff and you puff and you won't blow my house down, okay? But if you build it on the sand, what happens? Right? Right? Um, you can imagine if you're building a house out on the coast of Washington or the coast of Oregon, um, you better build it properly <laughs> or you might be in trouble, okay? Well, what Christ is doing there in the Sermon on the Mount in regards to his teachings, I think Paul is doing in this letter in regards to the person and work of Christ himself, okay? The person work of Christ himself. In other words, chapter one, here's the rock, okay? Or to, to use the language more like the way Paul is, here's the fruitful ground, okay? Here's the ground that if you're planted in, you can bear fruit, okay? Here's, the, here's what's transforming the world and causing it to go from thorns and thistles, all that, all that um, curse language of Genesis 3, and causing it to become fruitful once again under the Lordship of Christ, under the Gospel of Christ. And then chapter 2, well, here's a place where you can really go off the rails um, if you move off of Christ to whatever it is that's going on in chapter 2, okay? Uh, and so I think that's kind of one way to think about. And then chapter 3 is getting back to when you're built on Christ, here's what your life is going to look like. You're going to be able to fight against sin. You're going to be able to say no to those desires that cause you to want to disobey God. You're going to be able to have a, an orderly household where husbands love their wives and raise their children um, in a godly manner and wives submit to their husbands and children obey their parents. Um, and so everything that's kind of what you might say doctrinal and, and theoretical here in chapter one becomes very practical and applicable in chapter three. And then chapter four, chapter four is where, you know, Paul has all these greetings and, and you might say to yourself, well, do I really need to know the name of a guy called named Tychicus or Jesus, also known as Eustace or, you know, Mark, um, who probably is the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. Do I really need to know all those names? Well, you know, maybe you don't have to memorize all those names, but it is a reminder that this kind of general language that Paul is using here in chapter one, it was actually happening. You know, it was actually happening wherever Paul's in prison so that he can write about all these people that are being transformed by the gospel. And it was actually happening there in Colossae and in Laodicea and in Hierapolis um, lives were actually being transformed so much so that, that, you know, Paul knew their names, okay? And Paul could, could specifically greet them and say, you know, you're fellow workers of mine, or I have these fellow workers here, or we are, you know. And, and one of the interesting things about uh, chapter 4, um, I just want to make sure I don't misquote it here. <clears throat> uh, chapter 4 um, 
verse 10 and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, and Jesus, who is called Eustace, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Okay? Paul has a lot to say negatively about his Jewish background in, in various places, right? Because like him, they were people who, even though they were waiting for Israel's Messiah, when the Messiah came, they rejected him. Okay, and he's saying that's a bad place to be. And my, my hope's desire is that I could be cut off um, for their sake, that they might be saved, you know, Romans chapter 10 uh, and all that. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit more next week when we look at chapter 2. But, but chapter 4 is reminding us is that even though he's saying, you know, in Christ there's neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither circumcised or uncircumcised. All people who, who believe in the Messiah, all people who are baptized into him, are now the people of God. They are the chosen ones. They are the holy ones, right? Chapter 3, verse 12, these titles that are sort of Israel titles that are now being applied to all those who are disciples of Jesus. Well, that doesn't mean that we still don't have familial ties, Okay, um, that doesn't mean that we, you know, even though we we are all one in Christ, that doesn't mean that that God is out there just destroying all distinctions between people. Paul's able to say, you know, hey, these are fellow Jews of mine, and and so I feel a, a closeness to them. Now that doesn't mean that we're like this little secret sect, right? We're not a clique that goes off by ourselves, but but you know there is something, you know, Epaphras. Epaphras could have gone anywhere and preached the gospel, but he went specifically back to his hometown. Okay? Right? And, 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 and so, you know, similarly, we, we might be interested in the way the gospel is spreading in, in Russia and Ukraine and China, but we'd also like to see it spread right here in Vancouver and, and Battleground, right? I mean, you know, there, we have a particular affinity for people that we're close to, and we want to see them uh, transformed by the gospel as well, okay? Um, so anyway, that's just one of the interesting things about what's going on in chapter 4 and, and why these, these lists at the end of, of Paul's letters, you know, they, they, they may strike us sometimes as like the genealogies of chap, uh, in the Old Testament. You know, what, what's the point of all these genealogies? Well, there is a point, and there's a point for all of these greetings that Paul has at the end uh, of his letters. Um, all right, so introduction. It's a three-part introduction, right? And you can see here, here's how I'm thanking God for you. Here's how I'm praying for you. Here's how I'm working for you. Okay? That's basically the three-part introduction of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. And as you can see, the longest one of those sections is the prayer because it has this amazing, um, you know, some people call it a hymn, uh, a poem. Um, you know, did it exist before Paul wrote this letter and he's just inserting it here into this letter? There's a big, there's a big debate about that. Whatever, whatever its origin is, whether it's Paul himself or whether it was something that existed prior to Paul as some kind of creed or, or confession, it becomes Paul's 
right, as he puts it in the letter, okay, it, it becomes, um, he's obviously deliberately putting it here for a very important purpose. Um, and, and again, we'll talk about this more in the sermon today, uh, but that's part of the reason that the that the prayer is so long is because it, it's, it contains uh, kind of this amazing confession about who Christ is um, and what what God is doing in Christ. All right, so he begins with this uh, thanksgiving as most um, most letters of Paul do. Anybody remember the only letter that doesn't have a thanksgiving in it? It's Paul's earliest letter, most likely. No, that's one of his later letters. Galatians. Galatians, right? Because the problem is so right there, okay? It's like, in other words, the problem in Galatians is probably coming right out of the pulpit, okay? There's some, there's some false teachers right in those churches. And so he just skips the Thanksgiving and says, you guys got a big problem. You know, you better, you better pay attention here, okay? No other gospel than, 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 than this gospel. Um, but like most of his letters, he has the Thanksgiving. And again, most of these thanksgivings, like I was saying about the whole chapter, are often hinting at themes that come up later in the letter. Okay, um, and, and and I would say the the focus of the thanksgiving is fruitfulness. Right? There's fruit in terms of the 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 Colossians are bearing fruit of faith, love, and hope. Um, it's because of the gospel, the fruitful gospel, that there is gospel fruit in the lives of the Colossians. And it is because of fruitful gospel ministry that, that, the, that it's happening among the Colossians. Okay? And that's where Epaphras comes in. Right? There's a specific way. You know, I mean, there, there's this amazing language in verse 6. In the whole world is bearing fruit. It has come to you. Okay, the gospel has come to you. Now, you know, it wasn't because God just downloaded it into, <laughs> into the Lycus River Valley. Okay, it wasn't like there was this big thing in the sky that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Okay, no, it was an actual human being who had, who had himself believed that gospel who himself had come to become a disciple of Jesus, who had gone back, again, as an extension of the Great Commission that Jesus gave, right? Um, I mean, you've probably heard me say this before, is, uh, you know, our, our catechism says, God makes the, the reading, but especially the preaching of the word of God, an effectual means of grace, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, again, you've probably heard me say this before, but the prophetic word needs to be heard in a prophetic manner, okay? The prophetic word needs to be experienced in a prophetic manner. Put another way, when the apostles go out, they don't just start a publishing company. They don't just start um, doing Bible studies. They go out preaching. 
Okay? They go out preaching, and that's what God was using. And I'm not saying that God can't use other things. Okay? I'm not saying He can't use blogs, or I'm not saying that He can't use books, or, or I'm not saying that you shouldn't read the Bible yourself. You certainly should. <laughs> okay? God makes the reading of the Word of God an effectual means of grace, but especially the preaching of the Word of God. Okay? Um, because again, the prophetic word needs to be heard in a prophetic manner. Um, and then there's this interesting connection where he says, um, he repeats the words in verse 6 from the thanksgiving, indeed it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world and among you. And then he repeats that in the prayer, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God so as to walk in a manner fully pleasing and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Okay? So that should, that should tell us something. You know, it's funny. We often tend to think, <clears throat> I don't know, it's, it's, it's really weird. We tend to think, well, I don't need to pray for other Christians. You know, they know God. I need to pray for these non-Christians. But Paul, over and over and over and over again, you don't see him praying for unbelievers. He prays for the church. He gives thanks for what God is doing, but then he doesn't say, well, therefore, I don't have to pray for these people. He says, well, because God is doing a work in the, among those people, I need to pray for them that God will continue to do that work among them. So that's an interesting thing to, to think about uh, that I think we can learn. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for unbelievers, okay? I'm just saying we shouldn't forget to pray for each other, you know, for other churches, um, and not just sort of take it for granted that these things will automatically happen, okay? Um, and... And then he gives uh, these various clauses, four clauses, um, to show you know what what he's what he's asking um, to pray for. And and again, this is one of those things that doesn't always come across in English very well. You know, maybe maybe you've heard like the opening doxology of Ephesians one three to fourteen is all one big sentence in the original right? Um, and that's true. That's exactly true. Same thing for the opening doxology in 1 Peter, right? I think it's verse, again, 3 to 12 or something of chapter 1. And, and that's because uh, Greek, unlike English, loves run-on sentences, okay? You just kind of stack these words on top of each other, and it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on and on, you know, and your English, your grammar teacher says, don't do that, okay? No run-on sentences, okay? Put a period in there. Okay, well, that's fine. Um, but um, my point is, is that he prays so that you'll be filled, so that you will walk worthy, pleasing to him. Um, I'm sorry, bearing fruit, and then strengthen, verse 11, and then giving thanks to the Father. Um, and, and it's in the context of this thanksgiving that Paul then goes into this long kind of, you know, 
you got a lot to be thankful for. <laughs> you need to be thankful for the redemption that you have in Christ. You got to be thankful for who Christ is and all that He is um, as Creator and Redeemer. And again, we'll talk about this more in the sermon this morning. And you need to give thanks that, that you've been reconciled, that this gospel by which, by which Christ is reconciling the whole world to himself has also reconciled you. You know, you are a, um, an, an, an example and a prime indication of, of the kind of reconciliation um, that he's taking people who are hostile to God who are opposed to God, um, as as J. I. Packer put it famously, um, you know, sinful people are allergic to the things of God. Okay, you know, when you bring it, when you bring that that thing that makes you sneeze near you, what do you want to do? You want to run away and get it away from you. Okay, well, that's what God's presence in the world does to sinful people. Okay, they just they just sneeze and they want to get away from it. Okay. No, God has given you the ultimate antihistamine uh, in Jesus to to reconcile you to Himself. Um, so, verse twelve to fourteen is um, really fascinating here. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, for those of you who have read the Bible a lot, which I think is a lot of you in here, is there anything in the Old Testament in those verses that might spark your thinking? There's a few key words there that might. Yes. I think of the darkness uh, that he put over Egypt. Very good. And what what was the context of that darkness? Well, it was a plague. It was a plague. Because uh, uh, Pharaoh and God. But what book is it in? Exodus. Exodus, right? So it's in the context of the Exodus, right? What's the point of the Exodus? Deliverance. Deliverance, or we could say redemption out of slavery to bring them into the promised land, land, which was their inheritance. inheritance. Right? This whole section, Paul is describing what has happened to us in the New Covenant in very Old Covenant terms. In fact, if I, if I was to, you know, um, if I was to put it up here on the screen, I, I didn't bring it with me today, but I could show you how in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, Paul is using very explicit terminology from Exodus 14 and from Deuteronomy to show that he's describing what God has done in Christ in terms of the fulfillment of the Exodus, which of course is exactly what the prophets, right? The, 
The prophets look at what happens to Israel in Assyria and primarily Babylon and says God's going to bring about a new exodus, but it's going to be a lot bigger than the first exodus. Okay, It's going to deal with the forgiveness of sins. It's going to deal with you know, not just a geographical relocation, but a, but a spiritual relocation. Okay, And that's what, what Paul is saying here is that um, you know, the new exodus, and this is probably, he, he uses this imagery a lot in his letters, but this is probably the most explicit where he is describing salvation as the new exodus, the new and true exodus. Okay, um, So what, what he kind of alludes to, um, and, and, and by the way, he, he alludes to it here as well there's there's no what one of the things that's interesting about colossians kind of like philippians is that there are no explicit quotations of the old testament right as there is for instance in romans and galatians you know and even first corinthians that is lar- like colossians written largely to a gentile church even there, he'll directly quote, you know, as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2, you know, no eye has seen or ear has heard, uh, referencing Isaiah 64, you know, or, there's, or there's, there's all these quotations in the book of Romans and all these quotations in the book of Galatians. So there's no, there's no uh, explicit, as it is written by Isaiah or whatever, in Colossians, again, like Philippians, and yet there's all these interesting allusions, okay? Part of which, you know, it's a reminder to us that the New Testament always needs to be read in light of the Old Testament, okay? The Old Testament always needs to be read in light of the New Testament, right? Even though we say that there's an Old and a New Testament, ultimately this is one big book, okay? Again, you've probably heard me use this illustration before. Um, you know, having the Old Testament only is like having the first two volumes of the Lord of the Rings. Okay. You know, what's the end of the story? Is the ring going to be destroyed? Are they going to be destroyed? Is there going to be a return of a king? Right. And so you get, you got to have that last volume if you're really going to understand the whole story. Okay. So that you can understand, so that you can understand, you know, you go back and read it again and that little ranger and Bree actually is the king of the world, okay? Just as that little baby born in the little town of Bethlehem is actually the king of the world, all right? He's the return of the king. Um, So anyway, all that to say is that, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that even when there's no explicit quotations, there's going to be all kinds of illusions and references because, you know, just like Jesus taught the apostles, you know, um, these are the things I told you while I was still with you, that everything written about, uh, written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the, the Psalms must be fulfilled about me. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again on the third day. Luke chapter 24 is what I'm referring to. And so this is just Paul kind of doing a Luke chapter 24. And then he's doing the same thing here in... Um, you know, now he's going to say in the next passage, and again, we'll talk about, I'm going to save some of this for, for the sermon. Um, 
he's going to say in the next section, oh, by the way, that one in whom you've experienced a new exodus, he's the creator of the world. You know, he actually is not just God's agent of redemption, but God himself. He's the creator God. He's the redeemer God. Okay. Uh, again, we'll get into that more during the sermon. Um, and, and again, um, one of the things that's interesting, not only is Paul alluding to the Exodus um, and saying, you, you are Exodus people, you are the fulfillment of what the prophets have been saying for the 800 years previous to uh, the coming of Christ, but some of, the, some of the ways he describes Christ here in verses 15 to 20 are ways that Jews were talking about the law in that time period. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called Sirach, also known as Ecclesiasticus, which is in the Apocrypha. Um, and you know, it, it's kind of alluding to Proverbs 8, which kind of is this mysterious wisdom figure by whom God creates the heavens. Um, it's going to be our Old Testament reading, I believe, this morning. Um, and Sirach is alluding to that and saying, you know, this is the law of Moses in which all things consist. Okay. And Paul is, is you know, again, he's laying the foundation in chapter one saying here's the rock um so that so that when he gets to chapter two which i'm going to argue to you next week is largely about judaism um which so here's a definition of judaism i guess it's the it's the attempt to have an old testament religion that's not fulfilled in christ okay the attempt to have an old testament religion which again, that's a misreading of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a story in search of an ending, and Christ is that ending. Okay. Um, all right, and and I think that's part of the reason why he's making use of this language is to say, don't think that all things consist in the law. Even the law was good, you know, it's righteous. It had its purpose. Um, don't think that all things consist in the law. All things consist in the giver of the law, ultimately, which is Christ himself. Okay. Then Paul goes on to say, so here's how I'm thanking God for you, verses 3 to 8. Here's how I'm praying for you, verses 9 to 23. And then here's how I'm working for you, even though I've never met you, even though I've never been to your little town, because uh, I'm too busy with these important cities like Corinth and <laughs> Athens and places like that. Um, uh, which, but again, Philemon says he, he wants to vi visit there and likely did. And that may be another reason that he wrote it from Ephesus rather than from Romans. But again, I'm not, uh, it, it, it ultimately doesn't really matter, I think, how you interpret the letter. Anyway, he has this arresting phrase at the beginning of this, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Hmm. Is it okay that Christ's afflictions are lacking? Thank <laughs> you. 
talking about being lying on the cross. Are you talking about being on dying on the cross? Am I talking about dying on the cross? That's a good question. What do you think? Come on, you're good Presbyterians here. <laughs> there is nothing lacking. Okay, there's nothing. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, there's nothing lacking in the, the suffering of Christ. Okay, and what's interesting here is that Paul uses a different word, this word afflictions. Okay, so the normal word for suffering is pasco. Okay, we get the word pathos from that, or sympathy to suffer with, empathy to suffer in, kind of thing. Okay, so he uses a different word, thlepsis. Okay. Uh, and, and, and this word is never used directly in reference to the cross in the way that the other word normally is, okay? So one way to think about this is that uh, remembering the distinction between redemption accomplished and redemption applied, okay? Redemption accomplished is what Christ does to secure uh, the salvation of his people on the cross. And according to the book of Hebrews, that is once for all. Okay? There is nothing lacking in that. But, but, how does that once for all accomplished salvation become applied to people? Well, it becomes applied through the ministry of the gospel. And when you look at the way Paul talks about his life, you know, we are counted as the refuse of the earth. Okay? You know, he lists all these things that he goes through in 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11 and, and all this suffering that he has to go through. And, you know, remember, every one of the apostles, except for one that we know of, is martyred, okay? So they're filling up, in a sense, what is lacking in terms of the application, and that continues today, right? Uh, people who go, you know, famous example from 80 years ago, Jim Elliott, right? Going to South America to very hostile people to bring the gospel to them and ends up being martyred, being killed, okay? And there's other examples that you could give. Um, so anyway, that's one way to think about that. Um, and then he talks about how he is an agent He's not just any old preacher, right? He's an agent of revelation. Um, the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. And I think that's not just referring to the fact that he was a really good preacher and a really effective preacher, but they, he was actually, in writing these letters, you know, speaking the word of God, you know, supplementing what we know of from the law of Moses in fact, he commands at the end of this letter, make sure this letter, after you read it, make sure you send it over to Laodicea and they read it too. Okay? And, and of course, now we read it today, understanding that, is, that it is part of the, the Word of God. The mystery hidden, but now revealed. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles 
are the riches of the glory. And of course, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, right? He says that explicitly, I think, in Romans 16, which is Christ in you. And again, I think I mentioned earlier, you could translate that Christ among you. Sometimes we, you know, it's very important for us to talk about union with Christ, but we sometimes think of it in a very individualistic fashion. But much like the book of Ephesians, and by the, by the way, um, Colossians and Ephesians are essentially parallel letters. Okay, they're essentially parallel letters. Just like we've got parallel gospels, right? Mark and Matthew and Luke are essentially kind of telling the same story with slight variations, okay? Um, Colossians and Ephesians are kind of the same way. There's lots of phrases that are shared in common. They were probably both written at the same time. They're pro probably both sent at the same time. And, and, and what I would say the difference is, is this. Colossians has a very specific occasion in chapter 2 that he wants to address, whereas Ephesians, we could say, is Paul's most Catholic letter. Okay, It's kind of taking the same content in Colossians and writing it in a much more general fashion. There's no, there's no specific occasion except to say, you know, Gentiles are also part of the, the household of faith. They're also part of the Israel of God. Okay, so that's the only kind of specific occasion that Ephesians is addressing. And in fact, there's some evidence that some of the earliest manuscripts of Ephesians don't even have the word Ephesus in them. Uh, which would sort of contribute to this idea that it was more of a circular letter, kind of like the Catholic epistles, uh, Peter and James and, and, uh, and, and such like that. Okay, not addressing one specific uh, occasion or one specific church. Anyway, Christ among you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, if you want to know life, if you want to be faithful, if you want to be built on the rock, if you want to be planted in good ground, it's in Christ. Okay? And that not only speaks to whatever is going on in chapter 2, but that even speaks in a modern context. You know, some of our brethren who, who kind of say, and, and again, I've, I've spoken on some of this to you before, um, you know, who want to say, well, you start with Christ, but then you move on to the Spirit. Okay, you, you got to have this higher, higher level of Christian living. You know, maybe, maybe you've heard the gospel, Jesus died for you, but now you've got to learn about, you know, speaking in tongues and, and uh, prophesying and all that. Um, and that's just to fundamentally misunderstand, um, you know, again, you probably heard me say, the Spirit has this floodlight ministry, right? He doesn't draw attention to himself. He, he says, Jesus, Jesus is where life is found. Jesus is where you need to abide. Jesus is where you need to be grafted into, okay? You don't move beyond Jesus to some, something, you know, he's the head in which we all need to grow up into, all right, that we may not be tossed about by any wind of doctrine, okay? So, so that's, you know, Christ in you, presenting everyone mature in Christ. You know, the next chapter, verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures. You want to be a wise person? You want to be a knowledgeable person? 
get to know Jesus, you know, read the Gospels, read the epistles, do what he's doing, you know, live a life of, of sacrifice, of, of putting others ahead of yourself, live a life of integrity where you serve God even when nobody else is looking, even when there's no other Christians around you, okay? Um, and, and Paul says in verse 5, though I am absent in body, in chapter 2, verse 5, I'm with you in spirit rejoicing. You know, this was actually happening among them. So again, don't, you know, the New Testament letters are, are very important for reminding us that God really does change lives through the gospel, okay? It's not just something that was going on back then to a few select people who really got it or who really were committed to it, okay? The gospel is bearing fruit. Now, now I'm not saying that we, that we don't continue to struggle, right? He's going to address some of those struggles in chapter 3. We, we need to continue to put to death. And if, and if, it, if, and if you use the language of putting to death, guess what? That means it hurts. That means it's hard. That means it's painful, okay? Um, it's, not, it's not a simple thing to, to live the Christian life, but it is a possible thing and a required thing. You know, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Therefore, you have to seek the things that are above. And again, as we'll see in chapter 3, that doesn't mean that you just sit, sit around and pray all day. It's about how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you conduct your work, how you serve your boss, right, your master. Um, you know, just a preview of chapter 3. You know, Paul uses the word Christ throughout this letter, but then when he talks about slaves, you know what word he switches to? Lord. Master. He's Master Christ. Okay, you ultimately have a, you have a heavenly master who rules over your earthly master. And so you can serve that earthly master even when he mistreats you because you've got, you got a heavenly master that he's accountable to and you're accountable to. Okay? All right. Any final thoughts or questions as we wrap it up here this morning? I know that's kind of a fire hose. Yes, Mark. <clears throat> just it made me think of when you were discussing your definition of Judaism when you brought that up. Just the words in Christ is a definite declaration that they missed the whole point. Right. In the Messiah. In the Messiah. In the Messiah. Right. And, and for the Jew for the Gentile with their main philosophy the same if you see it the same way as his statement of in Christ to the Jew it's a declaration you've missed the whole point and to the Gentile you're not going to find it over there as he's going to say later yeah that's right that's very well said that's very well said that's right yeah and, and because you know that language of in which we can expand to say in union with there were all kinds of hints about it right why does the book of Kings focus on kings and not just every Israelite? Because as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. You know, Israel, why are you in exile? Why are you in Assyria and why are you in Babylon? Well, it's because of the way these guys lived and, and didn't lead you into following God correctly. Okay? 
So even though you could say it's all the people's fault, it's specifically placed. And so in Christ is about, you know, where are you going to find true life? Where are you going to find a true model for what it means to follow God and to love God? Where are you going to find the actual power? And, and by the way, that's another thing that's interesting about um, Ephesians and Colossians. Colossians, it's all about Christ and our union with him. Ephesians, it's, a, it's about the spirit. And in Christ, you receive the spirit. So it's just kind of an interesting, uh, and so therefore, you know, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. It's basically saying the same thing, right? Um, but in slightly different ways. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its richness and, its, and, its, and how it reveals to us so uh, clearly who Jesus is, and we pray that you would help us to abide in him, for only in him can we truly be fruitful. Bless us as we look at this book um, over this month, and bless us now as we prepare to, to meet with you in worship. In, in his name, amen.